Well, so good to see so many of you guys here. Thank you for joining us this morning, and thank you for uh, joining us online. Those of you all that are joining us online, um, I want to reiterate that we are here this morning to worship God. That is what we're here for. And if you came here for any other any other reason, um, you're going to be very, very disappointed. Um, also, want to reiterate that um, uh, that uh, Easter is. 9.30 and 11 o'clock. So if you show up here at normal time, 10.30, you're either going to be really late or really early. Okay? So uh, make, make sure that. And, and please, um, uh, I, I want to ask you guys, if you've never been to a worship night before, I want to ask you guys to come on out. Worship nights are amazing. They are just very, 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 um, this time where we get together as a church and we just simply worship. And it's amazing. So um, uh, make sure that on Wednesday night at 7, on the 31st, that you make plans to be here and, and, and do that. Okay, we are continuing in our, in our MOVE series. If, if you have been here uh, for the last four weeks, you, you heard about the four chairs. The, the chair one, which is the lost, chair two, the, the, the believer, the learner, uh, chair three, the worker, and chair four, the disciple maker. And um, today we're kind of... Not necessarily departing from that, we're going to take it a little bit deeper, and I hope that this makes sense to you. Um, the, the main thing today is this, it's all relational. Everybody say, it's all relational. It's all relational. Okay, that's the main thing today. You're like, Dave, what in the world are you talking about? Well, this is what it is. I can remember being challenged by a seminary professor to, uh, he, he got the class in front of us, and he, and, and he, he said, Tell the gospel without Jesus. And, um, and we were just to tell the gospel without Jesus. Um, and, and there were several valiant attempts. There were, there were guys that had, that had been, uh, you know, that, well, we're sinful and we need this and we need, we need to be redeemed and everything like this. And, and several valiant attempts with the professors uh, said immediately, he, he, after hearing this, he said, he said this, you should have immediately said, no way. No way. He said, the Christian faith cannot exist outside of relationship. And the fact that you even tried shows the failure of the churches you were brought up in. Whoa. He said, the Christian faith is the only religion based on relationship with God. He said, and Islam believes that God cannot be known. He's so far above. He's so, to even know God would be blasphemy. The, uh, the Hinduism has millions of gods, none of which can be known. Buddhism says there is no God, just a path to follow in life. Only Christianity is based on God wanting to be known and knowing you, he said. Saving his people from their sins so that relationship can be restored. See, it's all relational. The four-chair discipleship model is amazing. It really is. It gives us a good framework um, and, and the process that Jesus walked his disciples through. That, it, it is great, you know, where he said, come and see. Then he said, follow me. Then he said, follow me, and I'll send you out to do the work of the kingdom. And then he said, go and bear fruit. That's just a fantastic uh, process. But the danger is, is that all we'll see is a process, right? Uh, what God wants you to do is see in these four chairs increasingly closer relationship with him. That's it. All right, and we can't understand the Christian faith outside of relationship with God. Uh, we can't understand discipleship out of relationship with God. Okay, so to, so to the legalists who are in active active recovery this morning, you know who you are. You know, some of you recovering legalists that, that, that this is a tough thing, it's a tough thing for you to understand. But I've got good news. 
Um, uh, it is, the Christian faith is not a series of do's and don'ts. It's all relational. And the first thing we have to understand is that God is relational. God is relational. I want you guys to turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to be there the whole time. Now, you don't really think about Genesis chapter 3, uh, the fall of humanity being relational, but check this out. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tr- fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with me, she gave some of the fruit, the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, this is what is known as the fall of humanity, okay? This is where Christian theologians, Christian, Christianity says that all evil entered the world at this moment, okay? Prior to this, there were no wars, there was no adulteries, there was no rape, there was no racism, there was no, there was no nothing, okay? Think about all the things that have happened since then. Think about World War II, think about terrorism, think about all these things, <coughs> excuse me. And, all, and why did God put this tree in the garden? Why? We could have been saved all of this terrible stuff throughout history. It never would have happened if God would simply have not put that tree in the garden. So why did he do it? Well, he put the tree in the garden for one reason. Because it's all relational. See, God doesn't desire fake. He's not into fake. He's into real. If you can't say no, your yes is meaningless. Okay, so what, what God, God could have created this perfect utopia where nothing ever went wrong. He could have, but he didn't because it would have been all fake. Let's say that I invent something, and you guys can't see it because it's, it's really, really tiny. Invent something, and I'm just going to call it the Cupid pill. The Cupid pill. And all I have to do is give this to my wife. And from this point forward, she will love me, she will cherish me, um, she will, I, I, I will simply be number one in her book. And some of the guys out there are like, will she make a sandwich? <laughs> You're an adult, make it yourself, guys, okay? I heard that women go, amen! Yep. But seriously, would that be a great way to live? No. Because I know that all of the love that she would show me would, would not be real. It would be because of the Cupid pill. See, the only thing that makes my wife and, and my marriage real is the fact that she's able to leave. I'm able to leave every single day. And every day we choose each other. We choose love. We choose to be married every single day. That's the only thing that makes marriage or any relationship real. So God had to put this tree in the garden so that... 
humanity would look at that and choose him so it would be real. Okay? Author Donald Miller writes this when speaking about the Bible. He said, perhaps we stop reducing the text, meaning the Bible, to formulas for personal growth, and we read it as stories of imperfect humans having relation with perfect, relationship with a perfect God and come to understand the obvious message he's communicating to mankind. So guys, I, I'm going to share something with you I don't really share very often because quite honestly, it sounds kind of lame, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, and I just kind of tend to not tell many people this, but I'm going to tell you this uh, share this with you guys. You guys know when I became interested in God. It, it wasn't when I heard the Bible stories, as, as wonderful as they are. It wasn't um, when I found out that heaven and hell were real, it, it, as important as those are. It, it wasn't when I was confronted with uh, wrestling with life's questions or, 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 or wrestle with purpose or, or the other things you read about happening. That wasn't, those came later. But the first time I became interested in God. It was when I found out that God likes music. Isn't that crazy? I was a kid. I've always loved music with a passion. It's always been a passion of mine. One of my earliest memories, it was coming home from preschool, and my parents had a record player, and they had Bob Seger album with old-timey rock and roll on it. And I would get home from preschool, I guess I was four, and I would put it on, and I would go to the kitchen, and I'd get two spoons, and I'd sit down and pretend to play drums on the chair. It's one of my earliest memories. And when I was five, I started taking piano lessons, and, and, uh, and, and every, ever since my first recital, when I got to get up and play in front of the parents and people and, and realize that people enjoyed hearing what I was playing, I, I, I've just been, there's been a direct line to my soul through music my whole life. And, I, re, and it's, I don't know who it was that told me, but somebody as an adult told me that God loves music. And he invented music, I was told, for no other reason other than for, for us to enjoy it. And when every morning, every time I get to play on the worship team, I say one thing to the whole team. I say, you guys, you know what we get to do this morning? We get to play music. We get to do. And several years later, when the gospel was presented to me, and, and I was at rock bottom, and, and I, I knew I was, I was aware of my own sinfulness, and I needed the Lord, and I needed Jesus in my life, I, I heard the gospel through the context of that relationship that I had. That he, he was this, this God that wants to save me, loves music, and we have something in common. And I heard the gospel through that lens. I, I, I don't know what would have happened if I didn't have that. I don't know how I would have heard the gospel. But I heard it in the context of relationship, and it was very, very easy for me to believe it. Because relationship was already there. See, God is relational, and we can't understand discipleship or the Christian faith unless we understand that God is relational. And when you understand that, all of a sudden, sin takes on a totally new meaning because not only is God relational, but sin is relational, okay? Uh, it's a relational break with God. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree in the garden, it didn't seem like that big a deal. I mean, we eat fruit all the time. What was so big about this? What was so big? Well, thing was, it was a relational break. And that's what we have to understand. I remember the first time uh, I was lost in a department store. I was with my grandmother and my brother and my two cousins. And we were in, uh, I don't know, some big department store in Louisville. And we were looking, and I kind of started looking at something. And they wandered off, and I got immersed in what I was looking at. I look around, and no one was there. And all of a sudden, boom, I was without my family. 
I was in this strange city and everything. And, I, and so I started looking for them and looking, and I couldn't find them. And this employee found me. And she goes, um, where's, your, where's your mom? And I didn't answer. I just went, <laughs> and I started crying. And she goes, it, it's okay. You know, come with me, and we'll find out. I go, okay. And so I followed along and crying. And they, they, I remember them um, taking me up to the front desk and, you know, what is your name? <laughs> um, we have a crying kid here. Anybody, any parents missing their kids, please come to the front desk. And, and so I... Yeah, I remember that. I remember for the first time not having an adult around. And that's exactly what it was like for Adam and Eve. They had never been apart from God before. Um, I wonder how awful it was for them to be lied to. See, Adam and Eve had never been lied to before. They'd never been deceived. They'd never heard an untrue word spoken they were as naive as they come. They, 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 they had never, how, how terrible it must have been for them to realize they'd been lied to and realize they'd been deceived and realize that they had destroyed everything. You know, as awful it is for them, imagine what it was like when God arrived on the scene. See, guys, in 2006, uh, I arrived on the scene of the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina hit, 76,000 square miles of devastation. I had, a t- I had a 15 passenger van full of teenagers. I pulled up to the to the to the Gulf Coast, and I stood. I, and I got out, and I just stood, and and, and my jaw dropped. And I had never seen anything like it. Seventy six thousand square miles of debris and destruction, and and foundations without houses, and and steps leading to nowhere, and FEMA trailers, and and people just sitting there wondering what they're going to do. And never seen anything like it. And the kids who were with me, who were, you know, laughing and beating on each other, and everything, they got out and they were just silent. I've never seen devastation like that before. I wonder if that's what God felt like when he came up to this scene and realized that the man and the woman had, done, had, had committed sin and chosen that over him. I wonder, it may have been like maybe a husband coming home uh, from, from work early and, and hearing his wife profess love for another man. I wonder if that's what it was like. See, many of us look at sin, we don't look at sin in those terms. We, we look at sin kind of like the way we look at speed limits. You know, you know hey, hey uh, Mr. Police officer, how fast can I go before you start getting mad? You know, how, how fast? Five miles an hour over? Ten miles? That's the way a lot of us look at sin. I, I do a lot of weddings. Imagine I'm leading the couple through the vows, okay? Wife here, husband here. And as I'm leading through the vows, the husband goes, hey, hang on a minute, hang on. Uh, wife, I, I need to know something. Um, before we go any further, I need to know how far I can go with other women before you start getting mad. Okay, I mean, I mean, how far? Can, can, can I hold hands before you start getting mad? What, what, what about kissing? Can, can I kiss them before you start getting mad? You know, I, I need to know this before I get married. And if I was officiating that wedding, I would go, whoa, time out. Buddy, you need to leave, and you need to go study what it means to be in relationship because if this is the way you are looking at relationship, you don't have a clue. How demeaning to his wife it would be for him to have that attitude, true? How demeaning it is to God when we have that attitude towards him. 
See, we all have to understand that sin is relational. It's a relational break. Okay, I, I want you uh, how awful to imagine how awful it was for, for God to come on the scene and realize that everything he created, everything was, was done, was, was corrupted, and he immediately knew there were two things that were going to be necessary. The second he saw that, he said the first thing was the cross. The cross was going to be necessary because, I mean, the second he saw Adam and Eve that, that eaten the fruit and disobeyed, he said, I'm going to have to send my son to a cross to die in a painful way so that this relationship can be restored. And the second thing was that it was going to be the church because the church is going to be the one to tell humanity about the cross and about the reconciliation of this relationship that's been broken. He knew those two things were immediately necessary. I want you guys to think of the time you've hurt someone that you love. Everyone in here has done it. Everyone has because we're human, okay? I want you to think, and I'm not talking about just a little bit. I'm talking about what you have really, really hurt them. Okay? Everybody got that in mind? All right? Maybe use words that you didn't mean or worse that you meant. Maybe you were physically violent. Maybe you violated a trust. Many times it isn't even what you did. It's who you did it to. Maybe a lie that you told to a stranger wouldn't really be that big a deal at all to them, but to, your, to the people that you love, it was devastating. Not only have we hurt those we've loved, we've also been hurt by the ones we've loved, we love. And like I said, most of the time, it isn't what was done. It was who did it. I can get insulted by strangers all day long. I don't really care, but people that I, people could say that I know and I love could say the same words to me, and it cuts. Because, guys, sin is relational. It's a relational break. And when we understand that it's all relational, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the things that you do in life take on a whole darker, more personal meaning. Sin's not like a speed limit. It's a relationship destroying. See, when we understand that, everything changes. We understand, number three, the discipleship is relational. Discipleship. God is relational. Sin is relational. And all of a sudden, discipleship is relational. We're commanded in Mark 12, 28 through 30 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That it is not follow these rules and follow these laws. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And see, see, the danger in emphasizing a fantastic visual like four chair disciples is that it's turning some type of a checklist it seems, it seems like we, as humans, we always do that. We always turn things into a checklist or into a, maybe that's just the way we're wired. I don't know. All the while forgetting the basis of it's a relationship, relationship with God and relationship with his people. See, in chair one, uh, right here, that was here, the, it was the lost, okay? The main theme of, the, of chair one is conversion, Conversion. Conversion is the official restoration of that broken relationship with God. All right? Good news, bad news, and good news. The good news is that God created you and he loves you. The bad news is, is that we made the relational break with sin. And then the good news is that Jesus went to the cross to restore that relationship. That is the gospel. It can't be understood outside a relationship. And that's why the story of the prodigal son resounds so deeply with us. Here's a son who's got it all, got it made. He's in dad's house. He's, he's living the highlight. He's got a great job. He's got everything he needs. He's got a great father. And he says, forget all that. Over there looks better. I'm just going to take what I got. 
I'm going to walk over there. And the father's pleading with him not to do it because he knows what's over that hill. And the son says, you just stay, stay out of my life. I'm going to go over here. And, he, and exactly what the father knows will happen happens. He, he reaches rock bottom. All his friends that he thought were friends desert him. He's starving and he's broken. And he says, what a fool I've been. I'm just going to go back. And, and it doesn't matter what happens to me. I just want that relationship that I broke. I just want it back. So he turns around and he goes back. And the father welcomes him with open arms. That's the gospel. He just wanted to be back with his dad. It wasn't the house. It wasn't the farm that he wanted back. He wanted the relationship with his dad. That's the gospel. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells the story of a father in Spain who was missing his estranged son. Father took out an ad in a local paper. I love this. And, and said, Paco, this is your father. All is forgiven. Just come home. Meet me at the Grand Hotel downtown at 5 p.m. Now, Paco was a very common name in the city. And when the father showed up at 5, there were more than 800 men named Paco waiting to see their fathers. It's all relational. In chair two, after conversion, chair two, the learner, the main thing is transformation. Main theme is transformation, all right? Not because of laws or rules, because we realize so much about us. Listen, so much about us is offensive to God. That's what we realize when we're sitting in chair two, that so many things, our attitudes, our actions, our words, are offensive to God, and it bothers us, our habits, our thoughts, our beliefs. We allow God to change those things because we value relationship with him, why do we change? Why, why do we all of a sudden uh, think uh, things that we thought nothing of, our, our, the jokes we tell, the, the mouth we use? It, 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 why? We didn't care about those things, and all of a sudden we do. Real easy, because we value our relationship with God more than we value those things. I've seen love change more people than anything else under the sun. I've seen men who were profane, and lose their tempers at a hat, absolute jerks to everyone around, completely change when they fell in love. They realized that they loved this woman and that their profanity and their tempers were destroying that relationship, and they said, no more. That's why we change, why we become who God wants us to be, not out of fear, not out of judgment, simply because we value God more than the things that drive us away from him. Scripture says, find any offensive way in me, Lord, and get rid of it, right? Why would I keep doing something that is offensive to my wife and children? Why would I keep doing that and pushing them away? See, there, I value them more than the, than the things that I'm doing that are pushing them away. If I have an attitude or an action or something that, that, is, that, that is offensive to my wife or, or upsetting to my kids, I need to get rid of it. Why? Because I value the relationship, right? I value them, their love, and their relationship far too much to allow a habit or an attitude or an action or something to, to drive that away. So it's the same is true of God. Why does the addict get clean? Why? Easy. Because addiction destroys relationships. First with God and then with other people. Find any offensive way in me, Lord, and remove it so I don't destroy this relationship with you that I value so much. Why we change? In chair three, 
the worker. The, the, the main theme is action, okay? We don't, we don't engage in the work of the kingdom because we have to. How demeaning that is, all right? We engage in the word of the kingdom because action is a natural overflowing of our love for God, all right? There, there are two reasons people work. Take this out. Two reasons people work. One is obligation. One is gratitude. Most people, honestly, work out of obligation. You got bills to pay. You got things to do, responsibilities, work, maybe even guilt. Quite honestly, obligation is very, very belittling. If I found out that, that someone was doing something nice for me because they felt obligated, I would say, don't bother. Don't bother. Don't belittle me like that. The gratitude, though, is something different. Love is something very different. Love will motivate you to do things that stagger the imagination. See, when we move into chair three, um, we're, we're workers for the kingdom. It is love that motivates us, all right? Why do we serve in children's ministry? Which needs workers. Why do we serve in youth ministry? Why do we go on mission trips? Why do we engage in God's work? Some do it out of obligation, and, and that, that's true. Maybe even uh, many do it out of obligation. And God blesses that. He, he really does. He blesses that. Um, there are many things in life I've done that I don't really want to do, and God's blessed it. But when you allow love to motivate you, and gratitude to motivate you, all of a sudden everything changes. See, here's the truth, and I want everyone to hear this. People, we are what we love. We are. Whatever you love, that's what you are. Plain and simple. You want to know why you do what you do? Easy. Look at what you love. If you don't know what you love, look at what you do. I'll, I'll, if you show me what you do, I'll show you what you love because that's what we are. And guys, for far too long, churches have simply told people to change their behavior without changing what you love. You know, pastors like me have challenged people to change what they do but not challenge people to change what they want to do. Huge difference, all right? One time someone asked me why I was a Christian and before I could come up with a theologically correct, uh, acceptable answer, I just kind of blurted out because it's changed what I love. Guys, that's exactly what the message of the worker is. Your actions must be motivated by love for God. It's all relational. And until you understand that, you'll just be another burned out, frustrated church goer. Doing things, putting in your time, checking off your list, and never experiencing the fellowship with God that comes with serving in his kingdom. Chair four, the main thing is replication. Make disciples because we realize that's who we are and we pass that on. All right? We, we realize that people, uh, will, uh, their eternity without Christ, we understand what that is. All right? We understand where they're going, what, what their future is. We simply want God to know what we know. We want them to love God. We want them to, to have the kind of relationship with God that we have. And that's why we make disciples. Okay? Because at the core of the Christians, the belief that people are better off in relationship with Christ than not. All right? If they can know Christ like we do, life would be so much better. It's all relational. I want you to read this quote with me because this is true. Remove relationship from discipleship and all you'll have is another to-do list which will bring neither salvation nor joy. Boring legalism and powerless cliches will replace faith as a dominant expression of Christianity in the church. So very true. Someone once asked a, a group of pastors that I was in why so many Christian young people abandon the faith when they leave high school. They asked me that. And one person, first thing they said was uh, um, uh, they were led astray by secular education, postmodern values, etc. 
Another person said this. They get their first taste of freedom and, 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 and go wild. They change their creeds to match their deeds. I said because they don't know Jesus. There's no relationship there. That's why they walk away. See, people, this is something I've found. It's very easy to walk away from a system. It's very difficult to walk away from a friendship. Very easy to walk away from a checklist. Very difficult to walk away from someone you love. It's all relational. As the band comes on back up, I want to ask this simple question. What's one, what, what, is the, what would you do for the people that you love? What are you willing to do for those that you love? Is there really any limit? And speak to the parents here. Is there any limit that you wouldn't do for your kids? For those who are married, those you that are in love, is there anything you won't do for the people you love? That's why we engage in the Great Commission. Why we commit to discipleship, to being discipled and being disciple and, and making disciples. Because the one that we love told us to do it. Why? And just like we said, there's no limit to what we will do for the ones we love, and that includes Jesus. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French general, said this in his later years. He said, I know men, I can tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see the resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. The resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and the other religions a distance of infinity. And he says this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. It's all relational. Until you understand that, people. You'll never understand church. You'll never understand faith. You'll never understand the cross. You'll never understand Easter Sunday. You'll never understand the Great Commission. You'll never understand why people's lives are transformed so powerfully. You don't understand that it's all relational. But once you do understand that, ye any offensive way in me, Lord, remove it. Because I value you more than the things that drive me from you. It's all relational.